Hello, and welcome to this event on Defending the Future, Gender, Conflict and Environmental Peace, hosted by the LSE Centre for Women, Peace and Security. Uh, it's my pleasure to be chairing this virtual event today. Uh, my name is Kena Yoshida, and I'm a research officer here at uh, the Centre for Women, Peace and Security, working on the Arts and Humanities uh, Research Grant uh, led by Professor Christine Chinkin and Louise Arimatsu on uh, a feminist international law of peace and security. Um, welcome to all of you on Zoom and via Facebook Live. Uh, thank you for joining us and taking time out of your work schedules, uh, homeschooling duties, and a welcome also to any of the young people who are joining us today. Um, I want to also give a very special welcome uh, to those who participated in the project and who kindly shared their experience uh, with us. The purpose of uh, this event is to launch a report by the LSE uh, Centre for WPS, uh, Gender Action for Peace and Security, Hereafter Gaps, and the Women's International Peace Centre. We are extremely honoured to have Her Excellency Madam Benita Diop uh, to discuss Gus report with us. Um, and so we'll be hearing from those three speakers um, and they will then we'll have a short discussion um, and then open it out for questions. Um, those on Zoom uh, can, uh, can ask questions by the question and answer function and please do ask away. Uh, Facebook audiences can also ask questions and you can do that via the comments uh, section uh, under the live stream. And there's also a hashtag for those of you who are on Twitter uh, and the hashtag for today's event is uh, hashtag LSEWPS. Uh, so we'll look forward to seeing your tweets. And this event is being recorded and there will be a podcast uh, which will be made available afterwards. Uh, so if your friends and colleagues have missed it, never fear, they will be able to download it afterwards. Um, just two short pieces of introduction from me before I um, hand over to the speakers. Um, first, this is a thank you to everybody who was involved in the project and to say that uh, the report was made possible um, through funding from the UK's uh, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, uh, as it was then, um, the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office, as it is now, and the Arts and Humanities uh, Research Council. And we're really grateful, especially uh, to the participants for their time and for adapting to uh, the new project uh, me methodology. Uh, this project started in 2019 and continued throughout 2020. So you can imagine that there were quite big changes uh, in making it happen. Um, and the report looks at the place of the environment within uh, the women, peace and security agenda and it focuses on the gendered impact of climate change and how this intersects with women's uh, and girls' right to peace. Um, as the UN uh, report on gender, climate and security put it, there is therefore an urgent need for a better analysis and concrete immediate actions to address the linkages between climate change and conflict from a gender perspective. Uh, and uh, this is what our report um, has attempted to do. But it not only highlights some of the gendered impacts of climate change, food insecurity, water insecurity, displacement uh, that Helen will be telling us more about, 
It also highlights some of the feminist tools and solutions uh, which are being employed uh, in countries such as uh, Uganda and Kenya to promote uh, gender equality and environmental protection in an integrated way. So rather than in their separate boxes. Um, the report is now available online, I'm told. Um, and the second thing that's left for me to do is to introduce our incredible speakers um, in alphabetical order. Uh, the first speaker is Hannah Bond. Hannah is the director of the Gender Action for Peace and Security Gaps. Uh, she's worked with CSOs and the government in the UK and in the global uh, south. Um, she worked for six years in Ethiopia, where she specialised in conflict, gender, human rights and community based development and economic uh, empowerment. And she has special uh, particular exp expertise in humanitarian um, development NGOs in Europe and sub-Saharan Africa. I hope that's a, a, uh, a fair potted summary of her uh, incredible CV. Uh, the next speaker is Her Excellency, Madame Benita Diop, um, who is currently the special em envoy of the chairperson of the African Union Commission on Women, Peace and Security. She is the founder and president of Femme Africa Solidarité, an international NGO based in Geneva with its operational office in Dakar, Senegal. The organization seeks to foster, strengthen and promote the leadership role of women in conflict prevention management and resolution in Africa. Madame Diop played an instrumental role in the adoption of the Solemn Declaration on Gender Equality in Africa, as well as the Protocol to the African Charter on Human and People's uh, Rights on the Rights of Women in Africa, which some of you may know as the Maputo Protocol. She has led peace building programs as well as many women's peace and security initiatives, and we are delighted to be able to welcome her today. And last but not least is Helen Kezie-Noha, who is a feminist peace activist, woman human rights defender, and the executive director at the Women's International Peace Centre uh, based in Uganda. Helen has an academic background in gender and international development with over 20 years of experience working on women's rights, gender, peace building, conflict resolution and governance. She has led peace advocacy efforts at international, regional and national levels, uh, specifically in Africa and Asia, and her in research interests focus on women's peace efforts and women's participation in peace building and post-conflict resolution and we have and, re and reconstruction. And we have been very lucky to be able uh, to welcome her uh, to the center um, where she has also conducted her research. I'm now going to hand over to Helen, who is our first speaker, um, and then Hannah will speak, uh, followed by Madame Diop. Helen, take it away. Thank you very much, um, uh, Kena, for the warm introduction. Um, it's so good to see all of you. Um, I'm just going to be building on what uh, Kena has said in terms of um, our research and what we tend to do today. So I'm going to be presenting with Hannah. I will present the research findings in terms of the, the thematic areas. And Hannah will then talk about the key recommendations uh, that came out from the research. Uh, this report is based on interviews that we conducted with practitioners, experts, academics, and activists 
in the area of women, peace and security and the environment. Um, the primary data was collected through in-depth um, semi-structured interviews and focus group discussions. Uh, there was also a roundtable uh, uh, meeting that was held in London um, also to articulate, you know, you know, some of the findings we are going to be presenting. The four focus group discussions we had was in northern Uganda in the districts of Yombe and Ajumani in, two, in 2020. Uh, we picked those two districts because they host refugees from South Sudan uh, mostly. And because we also wanted to expand our reach in terms of how uh, climate change also impacts on the lives of refugees when we are discussing women, peace and security, it was important for us to include them in the discussion. Um, the participants that we talked to, we asked them a number of questions, including what they saw as intersections between gender, peace and the environment, as well as feminist solutions they knew we were being employed to work towards gender equity and environmental peace. Um, so I'm going to be presenting, another thing to note is that um, overall, um, for the focus group discussion, we interviewed 90 women and girls uh, in rural communities and refugee settings. Um, most of the women we interviewed were women that were working with us in our existing projects uh, in the refugee communities. Uh, within these groups, we specifically had um, focus group discussions with young women, uh, girls, and women living with disabilities. Um, we conducted these uh, FDGs in different languages, including Madi, Lubara, Aring Arabic, and English language. This was because we wanted to make sure that we reach out to all the different categories of refugee women uh, who are living in, in the refugee camps. Um, so four thematic areas emerged from our, our, our research. Um, the first one is um, gen the gendered impact of climate change. So we found that you know, most of the people we interviewed described high levels of food insecurity due to water scarcity, which in turn results in high levels of gender-based violence within the household. Um, of course, in many of these situations, due to gender roles, women are expected to provide water and also to provide food. So when food is not available, there's the tendency for men to become aggressive and they, and they beat up these women. Uh, participants also shared that during dry season, the water levels go down and there is crowding at the water point. And when women delay to get water to get delay at the water point, they are also punished by their husbands and girls suffer from the same abuse, either from their parents, you know, or, or from their older ones when they delay at the water point. So water um, scarcity can also lead to migration. We know how um, in some countries in the Great Lakes of Africa, where, you know, animals have to migrate to get food. And then this also leads to people encroaching into other people's farmland and the conflict that is associated with it. Um, we also noted that uh, within the participants noted that there are changes within the region or within communities due to extreme weather patterns and climate change. And the impact of this uh, is mostly on women and girls. Um, you know, as, as women, uh, sometimes girls have to drop out of school because they have to stay home to take care of animals or go around with the animals 
or they are married off when you know where families do not have enough resources to keep you know going. Uh, but in addition to this, is the fact that um, women don't have rights to land. You know, so um, the underlying gender inequalities has meant that the effects of climate change has multiplied the risk, you know, mostly for women and girls, and more so for young girls or women living with disabilities. Sustained hazards and disasters such as floods, torrential rains, landslides and droughts, followed by too much rain, links directly to making girls vulnerable during the periods of associated hardship. Girls are giving away in exchange for livestock or even for food in time of disasters. Young girls are at greater risk of rape due to changes in the environment as their mothers go to fetch food or water. They also noted that girls sometimes drop out of school or are married off young as families struggle to survive, as I mentioned before. An important takeaway is the need to look at women and girls' lives with regards to environmental conflict in an intersectional manner. So you cannot assume that because women are women uh, and girls are girls, climate change affects them equally. No, it, it, it affects them based on their location, their economic status, their refugee status, uh, and, and generally you know, what they are in terms of their disabilities. Um, despite this impact, climate change programs and policies do not include gender. You know, so we see a lot of times that you know, um, climate change, there are very few programs that take into account gender, you know, and these are just issues that are beginning to come into uh, uh, development spaces now. Uh, we also find that there's limited data uh, in terms of capturing the reality of, of how climate change uh, affects women. The second theme is women, peace and security and environmental peace building. The women's peace and security agenda and the practice of environmental peace building have developed separately. So the women's peace and security agenda has largely overlooked how environmental degradation, climate change, and energy resources affect women and girls' lives in conflict and post-conflict situations, and how the environment can form part of the peace process in forming solutions to conflict. Um, the Women's Peace and Security Programming has focused on national action plans and many times on ad hoc gender sensitization. And now we also hear about localization. But that most of the interventions had focused either on one of the pillars of participation, protection, relief and recovery, but not really integrating, you know, how these different pillars of 1325 interact with the environment. There is need to ensure that emerging issues like this climate change are included in national action plans and that budgets provide adequate resources for implementation through government line ministries. The third theme that we found in our research is environmental and women human rights defenders. Um, according to Global Witness in 2019, 212 land and environmental defenders were killed defending land and environment. That's a huge number. Many of these activists oppose extractive industries that are destroying the environment and the rights of nature. The activities of corporate entities have led to displacement of local populations due to land grabbing, pollution of rivers, and other natural entities with indigenous communities disproportionately affected in this regard. 
We are also aware in many of our countries how states uh, take charge of you know, land and how land uh, laws and policies uh, prevent ownership of land and how people are usually dispossessed of their land uh, because it's been sold to corporates. Participants shared how corporates hinder development in the communities as they stop people from accessing water or stop or limit access to land and how this has led to increased gender-based violence such as trafficking because people now need to migrate from their land. Women and girls do not and cannot own land in many of our countries. Uh, this means that they are often left out of consultations. So when corporates are consulting with owners, women are not included. But remember, women are the ones who are using this land. They use this land to farm, for food, you know, and the rest of the things that, you know, keep the families together. Individuals and community environmental and land defenders attempting to resist corporate power are targeted and harassed. Some of them are actually raped. Women who resist land grabs and structural violence have demanded accountability and that this has led to violence directed specifically towards them, both by the state and by the corporates. The next um, theme that we found was climate migration, um, uh, my, climate and environmental migration and displacement. Both natural disasters due to climate change and environmental conflict has forced people to leave their homes. IDMC's data shows that in 2019, nearly 25 million people were forcefully displaced due to weather-related and natural disasters. Whether the migration or displacement is due, is due to disasters or violent conflict, this process is experienced differently by women and girls. Um, and less attention is really paid to you know, how this affects women and girls. So generally communities are collectively described to be displaced, but this displacement you know, has a unique way that it impacts on women and girls. The other is that borders increase uh, pre-existing risk uh, confronted by women and girls. So women migrate across borders, but we see the risk that these borders present, you know, and as women migrate, they take with them their vulnerabilities and subordination, you know, as they move. During movements, they become even more vulnerable and most times are not able uh, to, 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 to think through what they're experiencing, you know, and then they easily succumb to different kinds of sexual and gender-based violence. Um, there is generally lack of focus, you know, when we look at it within refugee process, um, as we interviewed many of the refugee women. Uh, refugee women and girls are given limited opportunities to participate in environmental governance. Remember that these refugees are staying in communities that are not theirs. They're already feeling like they're, you know, they're in a foreign land. And when it comes to environmental um, conflict or environmental governance, they are actually not uh, consultant. For instance, water points that are constructed to bring uh, host and refugee communities together have often caused a rise in tensions over ownership of the assets. A lot of the communities also feel that refugees are coming to take over the limited resources that they have and, and uh, it's not enough for them you know, as a community. So you can see how you know, migration, refugee situations can actually uh, multiply when there's environmental climate issues. Movement and migration also happens within borders. So it's not only crossing across borders to other countries. We also know that pastoralists, 
usually have to travel from where they are within the country to look for food for their animals. And those moving due to the dispossession of their lands, uh, this has happened in many of our countries, including uh, Uganda, where I reside. Um, the final one and the fifth one is women's land ownership rights. We can hear it many times from participants that women and girls do not own land. Women and girls, you know, usually do not own land, but women and are the ones who work on the land. They're the ones who produce food for the families. But many times, even when they have to divorce or when they lose their husbands, they do not have any rights to that land which they have used you know, to, 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 to provide food for their families. And so when they say this possession, women are not consulted and they are not compensated. Even when the land you know, has been worked by them or it belongs to them, there's the assumption that the land belongs to men, and usually men are the ones who are consulted for compensation uh, by corporates. So we found that women do not participate in mediation or environmental uh, governance uh, processes. And it seems like it is the same thing we talk when we talk about women's participation in decision making. So when it comes to environmental governance, it's also the same thing uh, that we found uh, in our research. So I will now hand over to Hannah, who will be talking about the feminist solutions and the recommendations that uh, we made in terms of what we think should be done to address the gaps that we found in our research. Hannah, over to you. Thank you very much, Helen. Um, if you could click to the next slide, that would be great, please. Um, and briefly to reiterate my thanks to Kena and Helen and the Women, Peace and Security um, the LSE Women, Peace and Security Centre team, as well as my colleagues at GAPS and Madame Diop, um, as well as Kena said at the beginning, to all of the participants um, in the research and, and obviously to all of you for joining. Um, it's a real pleasure to speak today and for GAPS to partner with the LSE Centre for Women, Peace and Security and the Women's International Peace Centre on this project. Um, as Helen has outlined, our joint research had clear thematic findings from which we've distilled 10 overarching recommendations that, as Helen and Kena said, I'll speak to now. The first and um, probably most, I think we just need to go back to the, um, the first one of those slides, if that's all right. Um, so the first and, and probably most obvious um, is to ensure women and girls participation and that that participation is intersectional. Women and girls in fragile and conflict-affected states are rarely considered experts, despite the impact that climate change, gender inequality and conflict have on them. The solutions that they have developed themselves, um, and they have developed solutions themselves, often without input from those that are considered experts globally. This consideration of lack of expertise excludes women and girls from conversations in which the international community determines expertise is required. Thank you very much. Um, the, um, without women and girls participation, key decisions will not meet their rights, needs and experiences. An example of that is the need for peace agreements to account for gendered perspectives to land ownership and access to natural resources, which acknowledge the impact that climate change is having on them and the solutions that women and girls are already employing. As Helen said, women and girls often do not have rights to the land. Peace processes should therefore be about the connection and need for land rather than a return to the previous status quo where rights were denied. 
The second recommendation is the need for participatory gender conflict analysis. The aim of this should be that solutions are developed with, not for women and girls. There are excellent resources on gender conflict analysis, including a recent facilitation manual from Safer World and Conciliation Resources, which really helps practitioners and decision makers through that process. Helen has outlined the gendered impact of climate change and how it impacts, how it intersects with conflict. And without gender conflict analysis, we know that responses will never be effective. The third recommendation is that policies and programs focused on climate, peace, conflict and gender, or any one of these, need to deliver women and girls human rights. For example, policies and programs need to address women and girls rights to the land, as we've discussed, and that needs to go beyond ownership to the historical and ancestral relationship with the land. And Helen has obviously already spoken about those gendered impacts. The next is that intersectionality is also essential. All actors should ensure that work in conflict context integrates, the perspe integrates perspectives on gender and the environment through conflict, security, peace building projects, programs, policies, peace processes, research are intersectional in their design, their implementation and their evaluation. At its very basic such work should ensure that environmental protection is considered in the design of all programming so that it does not further exacerbate climate change, environmental degradation and gender inequality. The fifth focuses on the need for inclusion of indigenous groups and their connection to the land, whereby states, intergovernmental bodies and international institutions recognise and support traditional solutions to environmental management by indigenous groups and recognize indigenous rights to the land and their connection to the land. Could you go to the next slide, please? Um, the sixth is the need to support and fund networks and organizations. Supporting networks of women human rights defenders and organizations is essential. They need funding for their self-defined priorities to enable them to work on strategies for addressing the systemic and structural attacks on rights and the environment, as well as responses to climate, gender inequality and peace. Support to networks allows women human rights defenders and organisations to strategise together nationally, regionally and internationally. It is essential that that funding is both flexible and for their self-defined priorities. The next recommendation is the need to defend women human rights defenders and environmental defenders. Helen spoke of our research highlighting the need to defend the defender. The international community should support and fund protection mechanisms for women human rights defenders and environmental defenders, which are based on a sound protection strategy. Participants spoke of the need to use their organizational privilege to take on and redistribute risk and space. This means that organizations with more power and protection to take on risk rather than passing it to partners who have less power and operate in more risky situations. This should include, this should acknowledge and support the well-being needs of women human rights and environmental defenders and advocates and means that donors should fund protection and well-being. And I think it's important here to say that Women's International Peace Centre have done incredible work on well-being that's really worth everybody looking at and learning from. 
The eighth and really crucial recommendation, and Helen has already spoke about this, is the need to address and challenge corporate power. The international community should acknowledge and reverse the negative impacts of corporate power on women and girls' rights and the environment. As I said, Helen spoke about the impact of corporate power, including people being dispossessed of their land and threats to human rights and environmental defenders. This means that the rights, needs and experiences of those affected by climate insecurity and climate-related conflict is not outweighed by the power of corporations. It also requires governments to ensure that they mandate participatory environmental impact assessments. Where governments and agencies are self-called feminist, they should address and use the use of corporate power of organizations headquartered in their countries, particularly in relation to the extractive industries. The penultimate recommendation is on the need for comprehensive women, peace and security national action plans that are linked to climate change and the environment and vice versa. And finally, the international community needs to build its own capacity. We need to acknowledge the patriarchal structures that many international organizations operate within and for. This affects the way that we develop our programming and our policy, who has access to the room and who is, who is and is not considered an expert. Those patriarchal structures usually mean that women and girls are excluded and that, they are, and that the more marginalized they are, the further excluded they are. To undo this, the international community should ensure that their staff are trained and that their structures strengthen coordination of these agendas to support the delivery of these recommendations and their existing commitments to women and girls' rights, to addressing climate change, to peace and to conflict prevention. Next slide, please. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Hannah and Helen. I'm going to um, hand over now to Madame Diop. Before I do so, I've just we got one Q and A that I can answer very very quickly. We got asked a question about where the 212 figure came from uh, of environmental defenders which have been killed, and that comes from uh, a global witness uh, report in 2019, and that's a you can see that on page uh, 26 of the report. Um, Madame Diop, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, thank you so much, uh, Madam Moderator. And uh, uh, let me, first of all, um, at the beginning, thank the LSE Women, Peace and Security Center. I also wanted to thank the Gender Action for Peace and Security and the Women International Peace Center for coming up with this crucial report on the impact of climate change and risk on the security of women and girls, particularly in conflict and post-conflict situation. That really, I think it is uh, something that is uh, all, we all welcome. It's a timely report on an issue that is more and more recognized as critical to survival of humanity. Indeed, um, the recently survey published by UNDP and the University of Oxford, the People's Climate Vote, shows that 64% of 1.2 million people polled in over 50 countries consider climate change as a global emergency. Your findings 
show clearly that climate change, as uh, sometimes we call it climate crisis, is enhancing threats to the security of women and girls, uh, particularly considered within the broader perspective of uh, human security. So then I can say that um, your conclusion are in line with uh, previous studies. Let me also uh, quote another one, another study that in 2009, the AUC and ECA conducted, and they stress key element in responding to the climate change issue. The, the outcome was uh, the recommendation that they need to enhance full participation of women and their contribution to decision-making and leadership on climate change processes and action, including adaptation and mitigation actions. So again, your finding resonate with what is uh, occurring in other parts of Africa, particularly in the Sahel and the Lake Chad Basin. I'm going to give you a few examples. Um, in July 2015, in collaboration with the UN office in the Sahel, um, that time it was called the UN Special Envoy Office, my office also together we convened a forum to enhance the role of women in the implementation of strategy and initiative for the Sahel. And in its conclusion of that forum, we highlighted the need to provide urgent support to women of the Sahel, particularly those in the rural areas, in the face of the accelerating desertification and the impact of climate change on their livelihood and the communities at large. And also the fact they have been exposed to face gender-based violence in uh, those areas. The forum culminated in the creation of the Sahel Women Peace Platform, covering the G5 Sahel, composed of Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, and Niger. And I'm sure that this will complete the Great Lakes region, the areas that you covered in your own study. I think further interaction I did uh, with the Lake Chad Basin, um, through the AU-UN Solidarity Mission that I co-led with uh, Madam Amina Mohammed, uh, the UN Deputy Secretary General. Both of us went to visit not just the Sahel, but also the Lake Chad Basin. We witnessed firsthand the impact of climate change on women's livelihood and their security. The shrinking of the lake has deprived the population of their main source of livelihood, with the consequences that 60% of the population living on the island of the Lake Chad Basin had to relocate in the mainland, while insecurity pushed young men and women to migrate to cities or other regions. Even in this diverse condition, Women are the ones who strive to provide food to their families and community. For example, we saw again in those areas, we saw women 
who are turning to fishing, an activity traditionally carried out by men. As the lake shrinks and produces less fish, men abandon fishing, with a number of them joining the Boko Haram that remain a major threat in the Lake Chad Basin, with suicide bombings, kidnappings, attacks, and raids on villages. At the time of our visit in 2018, local authorities estimated that the violent extremist group is responsible for the deaths of about 30,000 persons and the displacement of 1.8 million IDP and refugee, majority being women and children. In Niger, in that Sahel region, climate change has exacerbated the conflict between uh, nomadic pastoralists and farmers, and women are at the front to address the situation. Following our mission, I invited a lady called Chima Ibrahim, president of the Maradi Chamber of Agriculture Niger, and she came to testify to the Peace and Security Council of the African Union in October 2018. And she briefed the council on their initiative at local level, that they were engaged to build peace between pastoralists and farmers' communities. So you could see that women are engaging at local level um, in, the man, in, in those region. And what the report have said that there is need to be empowering them and supporting the such initiative. So as you saw from your study, climate change is indeed impacting the security of communities, causing food insecurity, water scarcity, exposing women to violence as they walk a longer distance to fetch water, seek, um, seek firewood, and they're losing their children to radicalization and extremism, pushed by unemployment, poverty, and nonsense of future. So then the response, as you ask, what are we doing at the uh, Women, Peace, and Security in Africa. So under the team of WPS and Environmental Peace Building, participants in your focus, as I see the focus group that I salute in your discussion, you advocated for the need to ensure that emerging issues are included in National Action Plan on WPS and that budget are provided for adequate implementation. I'm pleased to say that um, in the Continental Result Framework, CRF, uh, for monitoring and reporting on the implementation of WPS agenda in Africa, the African Union, uh, which was being adopted by the African Union and the Peace and Security Council of the AU into 2018, um, emerging threat to the traditional pillars of prevention, protection, participation, relief, and recovery as being uh, incorporated. As you have seen, said, it's intertwined, and uh, we need to make sure that uh, we look at uh, uh, the emerging threat as one of the pillars of 1325. It's as also one of the tools to assess delivery, because what we're missing 
in the implement is the implementation of the national action plan. Implementation, implementation. So the emerging threats that we recognize in uh, the CRF include climate change, violent extremism, terrorism, pandemics such as the ongoing COVID-19 and other um, uh, you know, emerging threats that affect uh, the community and what member state and community may identify. So uh, as we know, NAPA are not meaningful if uh, they are not implemented. They are not, we need to make sure that um, AU and all member states adopt national action plan is one of our key advocacy. Right now we have 30 national action plan, 30 countries out of 55. We need to make sure that Africa adopt, all African countries adopt NAP in the adoption, the revisit of the new um, action plan. We need to make sure that your recommendation are incorporated. So, but we need to put an emphasis on monitoring and reporting on action undertaken by our member state and other stakeholders. Indeed, we, we must stress the need for accountability, oversight, and allocation of resources. In this exercise, I can say 20 countries have reported, and the African Union chairperson report have been issued this year um, to make sure that that accountability process continue at the AU level. So let me now say that, um, you know, I do believe, I do believe myself that we need to have a multi-stakeholders platform. I didn't dwell on the issue of the private sector that need the multi, the national or multinational that are exploiting natural resources and they should be part of this platform and the NGOs and the civil society and member states with strong and meaningful participation of women to ensure that climate change impact on livelihood and security of people is addressed in a constructive and inclusive manner. So let me now say that uh, once again, um, we welcome at the African Union, my office, Office of the Chair, Special Envoy on Women, Peace and Security, we welcome the report as a key contribution to the WPS agenda, not just uh, in Africa, but uh, globally, and um, as a critical element of uh, climate change impact uh, on women and girls. So we are with you in the implementation of your, the recommendation of the report. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you so much, Madam Diop. That was a very important contextualization and reminder um, of the fantastic work that is going on uh, already um, and the need for implementation, uh, which is a really big challenge in this field. Uh, I have a number of questions. 
um, from the three of your presentations. We have uh, some questions uh, from the audience as well. I'd like to say they are easy, but they're not. Um, so I think perhaps uh, I'll start with my questions, uh, then I'll open it up uh, for discussion between the three of you and then ask uh, some of these questions. Um, my first question goes to Helen and Hannah, and I want to return to the report uh, first um, and to go back on the issue of uh, the feminist solutions that came up over the course uh, of the interviews and also the focus group discussions. Um, and I'm, I want to invite uh, either or both of you um, to talk a little about some of those uh, feminist uh, solutions that came up um, again and again, uh, things we heard about, about women uh, taking things into their own hands, um, tree planting initiatives, um, uh, etc. because there wasn't very much time in the presentations to cover that. Uh, so that would be my uh, first question. Uh, my second question then, I think, Hannah, because you are the director of GAPS, I want to ask you about GAPS, um, which is uh, the report talks about the GAPS in relation to practice and policy. We've got the practice and policy in relation to environmental protection on one hand and the practice and policy of WPS on one hand. Um, and how can that be addressed? And I think you've touched on that uh, in your recommendations, but... Uh, perhaps you could go a bit further. Um, and my third question is to Madame uh, Diop. Uh, you mentioned accountability um, and implementation. Um, and I wondered if you could talk to us uh, a bit further about some of the other instruments in the African uh, Union, but perhaps the right to peace in the Maputo Protocol and how this all comes together um, and how it can be implemented. So those are my first questions. I don't who Helen, would you like to start? Thank you. I can do that. Um, I can talk about uh, the feminist solutions uh, that most of the participants recommended. And of course, one of them is to increase uh, women and girls and youth participation in decision making. And of course, um, we've talked so much about the fact that women are usually left out in these processes, but more so women, uh, girls, and youth are usually not considered. But uh, to do more work in terms of making sure that they are part of the processes uh, that are developed to address climate change concerns, uh, because it uh, impacts on them differently from uh, any other, uh, you know, from other people. Um, climate change crisis impacts on people differently, but particularly women, girls, and youth. The other uh, solution they propose is to support movement building and women and girls networks. We found that there are a number of feminists. Um, eco-feminist movements that are being developed, but there are very few. Um, there's one here coming up in Uganda, there's uh, another one in Ghana, you know, but it's not something that is, you know, it's as huge as we have the WPS network. Um, so supporting these movements, um, again, the question will be that many of us find ourselves in all these different movements, promoting different things that we can also galvanize our energies in a mainstream movement that then addresses these different issues. A good one for us in Africa is the Gender is My Gender campaign, 
where we have different groupings, peace and security, education, governance, that brings all of us together. So probably uh, we might be thinking about a, a, a thematic focus on environmental uh, climate change, you know, that then also intersects with these different areas. So there's need to support those kind of movement building. Why is it important? Um, in movement, when you build movements, you kind of pull your resources together. Um, you, you put your voices together. It's louder, it is heard. You know, you're more secure when you work collectively. And then when it comes to that attack on defenders, it's difficult to attack groups. It's easier to attack individuals. So there's also that protection mechanism that movements give, you know, in this kind of advocacy. The other is access to justice, that we cannot talk about, you know, the kind of injustice that people have experienced without them providing for them access to justice. And, and to take note that what we are dealing with is with state power and corporate power, which is usually beyond the reach of women and girls or ordinary women refugees. And that any program that you're, we're then developing must address the issues of justice for these women, for the crimes you know, that, you know, all these corporates and governments have committed against them, but also for that um, deprivation of their rights that they experience as a result of climate change. The other is intersectional analysis. And I mentioned it a bit in my presentation that we need to acknowledge that women and girls experience climate change differently and that women are not a homogeneous group, neither are girls. That, you know, climate change will impart on women in different ways, depending on their statues, where they are located, and also generally whether they are in their communities or they are refugees, or they are living with disabilities, or they are minorities, that the way that climate change impacts on them is not the same. And we need to look at it in those different ways, in the different areas, that when climate change impacts on women, it impacts on their health, it impacts on their economic livelihood, it impacts on their general well-being, you know, that those intersections need to be addressed as we go along talking about uh, climate crisis. And then the other is that we must uh, profile the voices of women and girls uh, who are most impacted by environmental degradation. Those voices must be heard. We need to enable them to speak, you know, to policymakers, to profile their voices, for them to be able to share their experiences and demand for accountability or what it is that they need to address uh, climate change uh, impact. The other is that we can also not do this effectively if we don't train women to understand, you know, the, the relationship between peace and environmental conflict management. You know, that many times they are also experiencing this and they are not even really seeing it as conflict, you know, and, and, and the way that we think because they are natural disasters, it will happen anyway, but it impacts on, you know, the peace and well-being and dignity of women. So it deals with the issues of human rights, the issues of the right to peace, the right to life, you know, and, and, and raising their awareness and consciousness to understand this then helps them, you know, in terms of advocating uh, for their needs. And finally, that we need to provide information and ensure that women and girls are aware of their rights, including in relation to compensation for environmental damage by corporate entities. Many times women and girls are cheated. The men go and collect the money. We know about a compensation program where the men even go and collect and they don't tell their wives and they just see people asking them to leave their houses and they're like, what happened? 
I've spoken to your husband and that is it. So is that bad, you know, but how do we raise their awareness for them to know what to do to protect their lands, to protect their homes, you know, uh, so that when things like this happen, they know what, what they will do about it. So those were some of the feminist solutions, but also to add that what we find is that a lot of women has taken it into their hands to do different kinds of things to protect their lands. So we find local women organizing amongst themselves to protect their lands. We had here in Uganda where women actually went naked because they wanted to protect. So women have done things, extreme things, you know, to protect their land because it's a matter of life and death. Their life depends on the land. That's where they get their food. That's where they live. They don't have any other means of livelihood. They don't have any other place to go. So they've done that, you know, and so many things. How do we then support them, you know, uh, to be able to be more strategic uh, and hold um, uh, governments accountable, you know, for, for the kind of violations they experience. Yeah. Kena. Anna, you can add, I don't know. Thank you so much. Hannah? Um, thank you, Helen. I think that that was um, hugely comprehensive. Thank you so much. Um, I think I just, in terms of feminist um, solutions, wanted really to reiterate the point that Helen started on around women's rights organisations, movements and networks, and how at the moment those networks, organisations, movements are very much um, often self-funded through um, volunteer time or through organisations that operate on a real shoestring. And many of the feminist solutions that Helen outlined could really be supported if those organisations and networks and movements had much more long-term um, flexible funding so that they could do that, that, that work. So, you know, Helen spoke about organisations that... Um, do tree planting, organisations that do training on peace and environmental management, on eco-feminist movements, um, advocacy, um, and all of that needs to be funded. Otherwise, it relies on exactly as Helen ended with, um, women's movements, um, women's rights organisations, girls groups, doing all of this in any of the spare time that they have. Um, and we need to acknowledge that this is a skill, it's an expertise, and it should be um, funded. Um, and then, Kena, then in um, response to your question about the gaps, um, I think that that's a really, really um, interesting and important question, that there are so many gaps between the policy that exists on paper and the practice um, that, that everybody experiences. Um, and I think probably firstly to say, and really crucially, I really believe that both women and girls' rights, but also increasing commitments to the environment are some of the most under-delivered on commitments globally. Um, so if we were to look, for example, at the commitments to women and girls' participation in a women, peace and security agenda, um, you know, we should have, many more leaders that are women, um, decision-making structures should certainly be a lot less patriarchal than they are now. Um, and we really see that gap daily. Um, when women and girls are included, um, they're often included into structures where they are asked to speak only about women's issues, whatever that might be. Um, they're often asked to give testimony, not their solutions or their expertise and you know Helen just 
listed a huge number of solutions that have required the expertise of women and girls. Yet, if women and girls are um, invited to the table, they're often asked only for um, their testimony. Um, and really, that has two really fundamental problems. Firstly, it means that solutions will never meet our rights, needs and experiences, and therefore solutions won't be effective. But secondly, it means that women and girls' rights will never be delivered upon. Um, and we've already seen that in um, COVID-19, for example, where we know that COVID has had has affected women, girls, men and boys very differently, um, with women more likely to be affected by job losses, especially those in informal employment, which obviously are mostly women and girls, global increases in gender-based violence, lockdown restrictions, meaning that women and girls can't access um, maternal health care, resulting in increased maternal deaths. Um, and the recent research that we've done with 22 partners, including Helen and, and her colleagues at Women's International Peace Centre, really demonstrates that impact clearly. And it shows that um, the lack of gendered emergency response plans links very directly to the impact that the virus has had on women and girls. Um, women and girls have been largely excluded from COVID decision-making rooms, meaning that um, gender-based violence services, um, maternal health services have, for the majority, not been considered essential services. Um, and therefore meaning that um, women and girls haven't been able to access them until there have been sustained pushes from women's movements. Um, and really that's no longer acceptable to have all of these commitments, yet they exist only on paper. And if the world is really committed to tackling climate change, gender inequality, we need to do things differently and we need to meet the commitments that have already been made, exactly as you were saying, Kena, those commitments that exist in policy. Um, and we need to change those systems that are exclusionary. Um, and that really means that recommendations, including the ones in this report, need to be implemented. Um, later this year, the UK is hosting the COP, um, the Climate Change Conference, and that's a real opportunity to start to genuinely ensure that there are gendered responses to the environment um, and that um, women and girls are given a seat at the table and that that seat is about the expertise that they have rather than only focusing on the impact um, that the environment has on them. Thank you so much, Hannah. Madame Diop. Um, uh, thank you, Dr. Yoshida. I will take it from uh, where Anna and um, Ellen left the uh, conversation on um, actions. And I think we all agree that we need to transform policy into practices. You know, there are many, um, you know, that are easy put on paper, but we need is action delivering to those commitments. You know, where I uh, become the first special envoy on WPS, so the, the Africa showed the way, as usual, that because maybe it's a continent that lead more to have a special envoy on women, peace and security, followed after by other countries, but it was Africa who decided first. So what we did was to evaluate the number of policy that we have in um, 
in African Union, in the continent, and see if we need another policy, you know. <laughs> and we said no, because as you mentioned, uh, you know, we have the Maputo Protocol, we had the Solemn Declaration, and we look at um, the Solemn Declaration on Gender Equality in Africa, uh, which was adopted by head of state themselves. The first time in the life of uh, the head of state to sit down at the summit and talk about gender equality, and they decided to report annually. So there is a provision in that document that they will report annually. And within that um, that uh, declaration, we have also a, a provision for 1325. So we say we don't need another 1325 in the continent. We have also the Maputo Protocol, which is very linked to the uh, you know, the rights of women, which is one of the very progressive human rights, women's rights instruments in the world. Everybody says this, you know, and we have the right to peace. And the right to peace say that the women have the right to a peaceful existence and the right to participate. So you can look, of course, um, participating in governance, in decision-making, in peace process. So you will see that the all pillars of 1325, uh, the five, four pillars, and now we have the five pillars right now. So those pillars are embedded in uh, the instrument that exists at the African Union. So, and we have lastly, the, Mal the Malabo is another one. The Malabo Declaration, which talk about women um, access to land, 30% of land should be given to uh, to women. So you can see that we have the right instrument. What we need is really implementation. That's why um, in my office, we decided to say, how do we make our member state, those who take the decision to implement? So we need to monitor them because if we don't go until, you know, monitoring, evaluating and naming and shaming, I don't think that, you know, building that platform of name and shame, I don't think that we will get there. So we decided to, with civil society organization, with think tank, with women groups, uh, like, like um, Ellen's groups, the Peace Center, to work on indicators of the pillars of 1325 to say, what do we need to measure, you know, in terms of the, the numbers, but also substantive issues. So we decided, and it was adopted by our Peace and Security Council, the Africa Peace and Security Council, as a, one of the instruments to measure. So then we go to the member state. We say, okay, so if member state, we need now more plan of action or revisit the, uh, the, the former plan of action to make sure that these provisions are embedded into their plan of action. So that's where now we put in place what you are calling in your report, the platform, the mechanism that everybody will sit to evaluate, to see if the implementation is rightly done. You know, did it go, did it go to the parliament, for example? Is it the national plan be part of the, you know, the national plan, the national plan on 1325? Is it embedded in the national plan of the country? 
Is it a budget put in? So it doesn't belong just to the partners because we realize that sometimes we do plan of action. We say partner is only partners who have to do the funding. So the member state have to look at the budget and allocate a percentage of budget within it. This part of our monitoring, who is around the table? What is the process? And what budget is being implemented and how much have been implemented? So we are at the second report. And I can tell you that this uh, uh, 2019, we get 20 countries who reported. I will not tell you it's an excellent report from member states, but it's a beginning of monitoring what they're doing. Because if we t- I don't ask our gender ministry, Ministry of Defense, Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Civil Society to sit together and tell us how many female military have they sent to Amisom? Do they have a gender policy, for example, when they are going to, the, um, to Somalia? So those are critical questions that we need to raise and we want them to respond to that. So I think that, as you rightly said, we don't need too many tools. What we need is implementation, action on the ground to respond to the people need. We need, we know what they need. We need what, what we know them. And your study have emphasized on the new threats, but we need to make sure that it goes down uh, when it comes to implementation. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Madam Diop. I think you just answered uh, a question that has just been asked uh, in the chat from Mariam Momentores, who said, amazing presentation by Madam Diop um, on the point about implementation. What are some of the obstacles and how do these solutions attempt to overcome the obstacles? And we just heard about evaluation, indicators, uh, national action plans, budget, and who is around the table um, and how much. I want to ask uh, some of the other questions and I'm very conscious of of time. Um, So unfortunately, I think the answers have to be quite short. Um, The first question is um, about, can the speakers expand on the issue of environmental imperialism and the need of decolonizing the climate change agenda? So that's one question. Um, the next question is, what has philanthropy missed out and what can donors do to holistically support women and girls affected by the issues discussed today? Hannah, I think you, you touched on, on that earlier, but if you want to expand on that. Um, Camille Marquette has a question for the panel, and that is, to include environment and climate considerations in the Women, Peace and Security agenda, different sectors of the development and activist world need to come together and form new kinds of partnerships. What kind of marriage of expertise would you like to see? So those are uh, three questions that we've received. Um, Would anybody like to start to comment. Madam Diop, since your mic is on, would you like to, would you like to add anything? Um, yes, maybe on the, um, uh, the issue, we will tell me that is uh, easier on the donor community as we are partnering in the African Union with, uh, with partners, uh, either it is the EU or um, other partners. Uh, and we need to make sure that the work that's done by private sector, because a new element, 
either, as I said, the national and multinational. We need to ensure that um, they are, when they are exploiting natural resources and causing environmental and societal damage on our community, that we make them also account for their acts. So I think this common advocacy uh, with, with the different partners, we can build that and make sure that they are accountable uh, to what they are doing. And also, I think that um, the investment that donors are doing, you know, partnership is, it's, is crucial in the all areas because what is happening right now in America is what has been happening um, in uh, Africa. So the chain of solidarity that we need, you know, so the donors and the international community, the African women and all women of the world should be together to fight the same goal. It's the environment. What impact in Europe is going to impact in Africa. So the chain of solidarity is crucial and important. And that's why we are asking maybe to have that coalition on the environment. I will leave on the... Uh, environmental colonization um, issues to uh, Ellen on the study. I'm sure that they just touch upon it is very crucial and in, in, in important. But um, yes, thank you. Thank you, Madam Diop, for handing me over that question to discuss. You know, while we were talking to people, they kept um, reminding us over and over again that they really hate it when people come and bring solutions to them, you know, in their communities. And they wonder that do these people think that they know better than we know in terms of what our problems are and what, you know, how we can address it. Um, so there was that call for people to stop speaking on their behalf, to stop um, uh, providing them with solutions that don't work. Actually, they also felt that, you know, people bring in solutions from their own realities without putting into account the fact that the realities we have here is different, you know. So um, I think that call is genuine and the women, you know, talked about it. And so what we also wondered and the way that we conducted this research was then to enable these women to speak about how they experience climate change. And then we asked them for solutions, you know, what would feminist solutions look like? And then what are the recommendations they wanted? It was very loud for them to say, don't give us any solutions. Come and we'll tell you what we want. And they also wondered why donors similarly also come with their own conceptualized objectives and goals of addressing climate change, you know, for African women, and then come and work through government. And this whole thing gets lost, you know, in, in these transactions of partnership or working with very large um, non-governmental organizations, and then this support tickles down very little at the end of the day to them. So I think that, you know, environmental imperialism is, is for real. If we look at a lot of the literature, you know, many of the writings have been from there. You know, people just give examples about what is happening in Africa and assuming that what happens in Brazil is the same thing we hear what happens in other parts of it. You know, so that assumption you know, that people think that climate change applies, you know, in the same way, you know, has really not worked. And we can even see it, you know, with, with COVID, that the way that, you know, the countries and the COVID is impacting on countries is quite different. You know, it doesn't matter, you know, what is happening in London right now is not what's happening in Uganda, where I am, you know. 
So these things are different because we are not based in the same, you know, areas, you know, the world and climate change, you know, happens in different ways. And this crisis also impacts on people differently. So a solution, you know, in one part of the world does not really address the same solutions um, here. So that's what I would say, but there's that call, you know, to decolonize, you know, response, decolonize research around environmental conflict and decolonize solutions, you know, to environmental conflict, yeah. Kena, you can also talk more about it because we had a lot of discussions on that. I, th I think it was really interesting that that came up again and again with the participants of people saying big organizations would come and say, listen, this worked in Cambodia, so you need to do this. And people would be like, but we don't live in Cambodia. And we have, situ we have solutions from generations and generations that work on this land in this particular area, which is very different to Cambodia or even, you know, on the other side of the country. Um, so there was this real, I think, uh, idea that people need to, to listen first uh, rather than coming and suggesting solutions. And the second part of that perhaps was that countries which um, are advocating uh, climate change policies and also uh, women, peace and security also need to um, ensure that there's accountability mechanisms for companies that are registered in those countries that are uh, going uh, elsewhere and, and perpetrating environmental damage. Um, so I think that was fits into to that um, question. Maybe to add just briefly on that, uh, when I was at, with uh, Mary Robinson, we co-chaired the CSAC Civil Society Advisory Group some years ago on 1325. We came with the concept and it was the women grassroots who say, we need the twinning exercise. Maybe we need to explore more the concept, learning from one another. So it's not just coming on the way that on an attitude uh, domination, but more on the learning process and a learning curve. It doesn't mean that what you, your success story will be my own because my, 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 my environment is different from yours, but we can learn from one another and uh, we can share our own experience. I think the twinning exercise maybe can uh, be one of the concepts we need to promote. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Diop. But we heard about that in the report as well as, well, as a cross-border initiatives of sharing yes. and learning from each other in those uh, networks that Helen talked about. Hannah, would you like to jump in? Thank you, Kena. Absolutely. Um, and I think on the point on um, decolonizing, um, we need to do that in every part of pretty much all of our work. Um, certainly in this point, and I think just to pick up on, on what Kena was saying, um, you know, I think we've really seen um, in many areas, but certainly in the environment and certainly when it relates to corporate power, um, where human rights and the environment are trumped consistently by what is deemed to be profit. Um, and that certainly needs to be addressed as part of this conversation on um, decolonizing. Um, and exactly as um, all of my colleagues have been saying, um, you know, the solutions really need, we need funding for solutions that are not top down. So we often see, for example, in Women, Peace and Security, we increasingly see calls for proposals that um, ask organisations to work, for example, on preventing and countering violent extremism. 
rather than allowing organisations to determine what their own priorities are, mm. which may or may not be um, preventing and counting violent extremism. And, and the same, of course, applies here. Um, and, you know, when I was speaking at the beginning, I gave the example of peace processes. And I think just to pick up on what um, Kane and Helen were saying around um, the, the amount that um, Indigenous rights and solutions really came up during our research and how, um, you know, we've spoken already about um, women not having land ownership rights, but actually that's really, really key. The connection to the land is really key. And when we're looking for um, solutions, that, that really needs to be respected um, as a really fundamental point. And I, I think that that all links to your, your question around um, decolonizing. Um, um, I think then on the question on philanthropy, um, I'll put it in the chat in a bit, but um, Helen and I with um, colleagues at GAPS, Women's International Peace Centre and a number of other organisations just worked on a project um, also funded by the UK government looking at um, what is needed for funding for women's rights organisations, focusing on um, Nigeria, Somalia and South Sudan. Um, and the research in that, um, and as I said, I'll share it, really demonstrates a um, almost step-by-step -step guide for what philanthropy funding or any form of funding um, should look like. Um, so I will share that, but um, hopefully that, that will be useful. Um, on your question um, around um, coming together, again, I think that the decolonization um, uh, question relates here, um, that often partnerships are very much determined by organisations that are based in donor countries and recipient organisations, um, particularly in this case, um, uh, based in fragile and conflict-affected states, um, have little to no say over the terms of, of, the, of the grants that, that they receive. And it's really important that we start to unpick that. And certainly as an organisation based in um, a donor state, that we look at which of those requirements is really necessary, which ones can we take on, um, and which ones um, uh, can we not. Um, and again, that relates to the expertise um, point that has already been made, that um, if we're looking at genuine partnerships and looking at coming together, we have to respect each other's expertise. And again, as an organisation based in a donor country, very much acknowledge when those expertise are not ours and not take that space that should be um, for other organisations. Um, and then finally, again, um, looking at space, that um, I think if we're going to make real progress, it's absolutely essential that women's rights organisations, networks, movements, women human rights defenders, environmental defenders are in decision-making rooms, that they don't have to push to be in those rooms. Um, there isn't a divide between um, state and non-state, but we're looking at expertise and opening up of that space. Thank you so much, Hannah. I think just to add on the marriage of expertise, I think a number of organizations, um, as this issue has um, become 
more prominent um, have noticed this themselves and have been trying to ensure that they're not just working on the environment over there and gender over there and trying to integrate and hire people. So they hire a gender person into their environmental team or vice versa. So or have conversations between teams so that they can develop an integrated approach within an organization. Um, but also there's really interesting research by Felipe Jaramillo Ruiz and Juan Pablo Vallejo in the context of Colombia, where they analyze um, uh, nationally determined contribution support programs and say that the word gender is mentioned many, many times, but that it's included at the end of a sentence without any concrete explanation of what this term implies. So it's a void of content which follows the term gender. And I think that's something else that people talked about wanting to avoid, that you simply take climate change programs or policies and add comma gender onto the end of it without having someone in your team that has the requisite expertise or knows what adding a gender perspective to those type of climate programs could be, um, and vice versa when it comes to women's rights um, although things like general recommendation number 37 of the CEDAW committee provide real guidance to states and organizations what, uh, what that gender perspective could be. Um, given the time, I only really have, um, have time to ask one more question. It's a question to all the panelists um, and it is recognizing all the complex and sometimes overwhelming challenges around these topics. Um, Svenja Volmer, I hope I've pronounced your name right, Svenja, uh, is curious to hear what the speakers would say gives them hope, either from research outcome or their lived experiences. So what gives you hope is, is the question, um, I'm guessing, in, in the context of, of women's rights, uh, women, peace and security and the environment. Helen, would you like to start? Yeah, thank you. That's very interesting. Um, there, there seems to be a lot of challenges, yes, right? Um, but what gives me hope is the fact that women are also not just sitting and waiting for solutions to come to them. Women have been able on their own to self-organize, you know, to respond, to have community support groups, you know, to address some of these issues. And the fact that women are organizing by themselves to find solutions, even though it's not to the extent that we want to see, that encourages and gives me hope that if you add a little, it will make a lot of change. You know, the other thing that gives me hope is the fact that there are so many women's rights organizations, a lot of women's movements, you know, are cropping up, responding to these issues. And the fact that, we do these researches, people listen, they respond to it in, you know, in their little way. And the fact that we still have that opportunity to hold governments accountable and that we have you know, people like Madame Diop who is there at the African Union who is ready to listen to us and take this issue to the heads of state and call them, you know, and call them to account you know, for the policies and laws they put in place. I, I think there's a lot of things, you know, that give me hope, you know, in this work. It looks like it's so huge, the, the problem, but there's a lot of hope coming, you know, from the courage and resilience of women. One of the things that came out from our research is the resilience that women have, you know, to, to, to addressing climate change issues. The way that they have been able to navigate, you know, to survive, 
to change the things they do, to change their farm products, to shift it despite the, the federal violence and the impact of climate change, that they continue to, to live and hope for a better future. It really gives me hope. Yes, Kena. Thank you so much, Helen. Hannah? Thank you very much. Um, I think mine is quite similar to Helen's, um, but I think I certainly have one thing that gives me hope and then almost a hope that comes off that. Um, and for me, it's definitely feminists who are working in this area. Um, the feminist solutions that you have outlined, Kena, that, that you've outlined, Helen, and Madame Diop, um, all come from feminists who are working in this area, who are deeply committed to it and who do everything that they can to try to make the change that's needed. And then I think my hope is that it's those feminists who have power and can access power and can really be the ultimate decision makers who can make the change that we all really need. Thank you, Madame Diop. You know, when, when I started being part of this Women, Peace and Security movement, in the 90s, you know, just uh, before the Beijing process, when I look at back and see where we are, of course, you know, you can see the glass as empty or as full, you know. Um, so um, I can tell you that what Ellen said, the resilient, um, you know, women, African women, when I saw them in 1995, when they were lamenting that uh, rape has been rampant in all areas and still is there, but we have seen some progress. So the resilience of the women and putting their own resources, finding their own solution. We have also seen uh, women pushing the boundaries. You know, the Me Too campaign is somewhere else, but it's trickled down to Africa, Me Too. You know, it happened everywhere. Um, the other issue that motivates me to continue is also the young people, the new generation. I believe on that, um, especially with the social media. You know, they don't have any barriers today. You know, they to communicate with UK, they will talk to anywhere in Africa. The young people are connected. So that connectivity gives me that nobody can ignore them anymore. So I know that the women, peace and security is still a glass as full or as empty, but we know that the young people will also take over uh, this agenda forward. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to wrap up here. Um, thank you so much. I know we have many questions that we uh, haven't been able uh, to answer. I'm, I'm really sorry about that. This is um, it's a complex discussion. It's very rich. Um, we, I want to especially thank um, Madame Diop um, and your office uh, for joining us today, for engaging with our report and for taking the time um, out of your very busy schedule. Um, I want to uh, wish you and your mandate uh, the, the best of luck going forward as well. Um, I want to thank Helen and Hannah um, for joining us today for their presentation. Um, I want to thank uh, 
Rose Kibara, who is the artist um, who did all those wonderful drawings um, for the report. You can see them online. Uh, uh, she's a graphic artist based in uh, Kenya and uh, her drawings are really, really superb. Um, and Helen didn't get a chance to mention it, I don't think, but a poster was also created um, so that it's not just a, a written report in English uh, where the findings are, but there is also a, a poster with um, these illustrations, uh, which can be used as a follow up as well uh, with the participants. Um, thank you to the LSE events team. Um, thank you to those who are beside, behind the scenes uh, here today in, in the green room and elsewhere uh, for making this happen. Uh, and um, thank you to uh, all of you who have joined us here today. Uh, the report is available online. Uh, I hope uh, you enjoy reading it. And I just wanted to finish with one quotation uh, from the report, which is by one of the participants who said that Feminist realities are the living, breathing examples of the feminist world we are creating. And this could be meaningful labor and care for ourselves and enjoying autonomy and peace is more than the absence of war. At the moment, the onus is on us to shed a light on what is possible beyond resisting oppressive systems. So I want to end there um, with us all dreaming about what's possible going forward. Thank you so much.